Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs. And become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 14. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four stories for you about close calls, macabre museums, cursed criminals, and creepy congregations. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this, and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to get started, so lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us courtesy of author Ronnie Fordham. Without further ado, I present to you The Sunnyside Murders. Serial killers have always fascinated me, 
Ever since I was a kid, I found myself both scared and intrigued by psychos like Ted Bundy or Clementine Barnabit. And as I grew older, my interest only increased. I was from Atlanta, growing up in lower-class Latino neighborhoods. I'd seen crime all the time. I saw gangs, drugs, violence. Basically, a first-hand glimpse into real-world terror. Life wasn't always perfect. Not when I had no siblings and only my skinny mother to protect me. By thirteen, I was bitter, angry. I didn't want sappy BS to cheer me up. I wanted something darker, more realistic. So in time, serial killers became my hobby. All the while, my mom fought hard as a single mother against the plight of life. And she won. Now I just had to make sure her victory wasn't for naught. So here I was. I, Michael Sanchez, was on the verge of being the first college graduate in my family. Just one more semester, and I'd be done here at Georgia State. My bachelor's degree in English complete. I really wanted to be a writer, and you guessed it, a true crime writer. My capstone project was to even be a basis for my first book, an exploration into the homes of Georgia's most infamous serial killers. Yeah, I kind of got the idea from the 1993 movie California. By the time Christmas break rolled around, my girlfriend Amy and I had already visited close to ten of those homes all around Georgia, from Atlanta to Cordell, but now we were going further south than ever before, almost to the Florida line, Stanwyck, Georgia. For a relatively small town, Stanwyck had its fair share of violence, maybe the highest murder rate per capita in the entire state. We were there to check out two particular locations, Jack Bates' old house and a derelict apartment building called Sunnyside. Sunnyside was a shambling two-story eyesore. Hell, I think it only had four apartments for rent. But the place was home to more than just roaches. It was also home to Clay Fowler, a bigot, a rapist, and murderer. The Stanwyck Slayer, as he was called by the press. Fowler was 35 by the time Apartment B was raided during the early 70s. Inside, police found the remains of all of his victims, dozens of them found not as corpses or bodies, but just as pieces of flesh and organs. All the pieces had been incorporated into his apartment's interior. They were sewn or nailed into all the furniture and walls. There was even a flesh-covered coffee table. Like a deranged home decorator, Clay had used his victims for Apartment B's makeover. With the aid of his trusted fillet knife, he flawlessly blended the skin and bone into his home with meticulous precision. The cleanest apartment Sunnyside had ever seen. Everything was said to be so smooth and soft, except for the occasional fleshy lump. Clay had mostly been preying on children attending a nearby middle school. Most of his victims, black, Considering his disgusting racism, Clay's location deep in the heart of Stanwyck's slums must have been a happy convenience for him. 
And like a monster of the mornings, he'd usually abduct the kids around dawn. Additionally, he'd also kill whichever adults got too close to apartment B, even a couple of his own neighbors from apartment A. From what I've read, police were criticized for not investigating as thoroughly as they should have, an all-too-common reality, whenever minorities and lower-class citizens went missing, something I was used to growing up in my poor neighborhoods. Ultimately, Fowler got sentenced to life without parole, and to this day, the Stanwyck Slayer is still rotting behind bars. I imagine most of y'all are probably wondering what the hell I got out of exploring the homes of the likes of Fowler. Honestly, these journeys weren't all about my project. They satisfied my passion, my obsession. Just being in these morbid locations grounded the tragedies for me. They painted historical markers for their murderers and their victims, and ultimately I viewed them as symbolic gravestones for such horrible crimes. So on December 20th, Amy and I left my mom's place. I promised to be back by Christmas Eve at the latest. After all, I'd never miss the holidays with Mama. Plus, I was going to bring her back a Stanwyck souvenir like I did always on these trips. The pretty drive was a four-hour journey through the rural American South. Amy and I had a blast, like always. She considered it an early Christmas present for me, and I couldn't ask for anything better. We were a quirky but cute couple. Both of us black-haired and brown-eyed Latinos. Both of us with hipster haircuts and eccentric clothes. Both of us from tough, poor neighborhoods. But Amy was much tougher than me not to mention more muscular compared to me and my developing beer belly. We'd bonded in American Lit over Edgar Allan Poe, two outsiders in a college where everyone else considered us weird as, well, you know what. But we didn't need them, or the party scene. We had each other, horror movies, and our shared interest in serial killers. By four o'clock we reached Stanwyck. I wouldn't say the town was tiny nor big, just an average all-American city, a Walmart in a great high school football team, a high school team that had just won a state championship, too. Plus, the city's Christmas lights were glorious, like a holiday Vegas. Such a warm greeting for a town notorious to all us true crime enthusiasts like Amy and I. There were the clean city streets, the cute country homes, the countless fast food chains. Overall, Stanwood looked just comfortable. However, the closer we got to Sunnyside, we noticed the gradual shift from Pleasant Stanwood to downtrodden, slummy Stanwood, West Stanwood to be exact. The area was more industrial rather than scenic, and with it came a conglomeration of lower class neighborhoods and public housing, Sunnyside apartments amongst them. The roads got bumpier. The houses became more unappealing. The Christmas lights now resembled shabby hand-me-downs. West Stanwyck felt like a safer incarnation of the mean streets Amy and I had grown up on. Soon we passed the middle school, and what a brick mess it was. A faded sign out front read, West Stanwyck Middle School, home of the owls. The sign's owl caricature 
would have been more at home in a 1960s cartoon. So would the school, for that matter. Much like the West Side's Christmas lights, Stanwick Middle resembled yet another indifferent hand-me-down from the city. And the neighborhoods around the school weren't much better, almost all public housing, all full of poverty and urban decay. Small-town America's rendition of my inner-city Atlanta hill. In a few blocks, we finally reached our destination and pulled up into Sunnyside's ruptured parking lot. My Toyota was the only car here. No nearby neighbors save for a shack or two. A Stanwick Middle School bus stop was right across the street, yet another unfortunate convenience for Fowler. Woods of tall trees and spiraling ivy were on all sides of the two-story building, the property long overgrown, almost as if Sunnyside had become a dark forest in the middle of town. The apartment's white stone structure was about as appealing as a funeral home. Once I saw the rickety metal stairway, I was glad apartment B was on the ground floor. Even in the early evening, I found it strange there weren't any cars or people around, as if the abandoned Sunnyside had been quarantined from the rest of town. Even a black eye for this lower-class neighborhood. Holding hands, Amy and I walked toward B. Both of us struggled to stay warm in our hoodies, the harsh breeze about as vicious as Fowler's fillet knife. We were ready for our inspection. She had the camera, I had my iPhone out, ready to type down my thoughts. Well, Amy and I's thoughts. In many ways, this was our project. I pulled my hoodie in closer, a weak attempt to stave off the bitter cold. As we passed apartment A, I stole a look through its large windows. I could see stray furniture inside, even trash and cigarette butts on the wool carpeting. Regardless of the tacky color, the room's blue walls looked fresh rather than ancient. Exciting, Amy murmured. I know, I said. I squeezed her hand like an excited kid clinging to their parent before entering their first haunted house. I bet they probably couldn't clean all of it. Chuckling, Amy gave me a light punch. That's terrible, Michael. I mean, it'd be pretty damn tough. The bitch had people everywhere. Even sewn into the couch, right? Like a confident professor, I looked right at her. Correct. We stopped at the black door the crooked letter B hung on it. Scratches and chipped paint accompanying the rusty doorknob. Cracked glass was on all the nearby windows. Somehow this place was never rumored to be haunted, I realized. Amy took a pick of the door. She flashed me a smile. You ready? Yeah, I replied. Cautious, I reached toward the door, then hesitated. Even in the daylight, trespassing almost got me nervous. I stole a look around us, even though I knew not a soul was around. And deep down, I knew no one would care anyway, not even small-town cops. I got it, Amy quipped. Turning, I saw her go ahead and snag the doorknob. To our surprise, the knob moved with effortless precision. One smooth turn, and Amy let it creak open. Well, that was easy, I commented. Grinning, 
Amy snap a photo of me. I couldn't help but smirk. Using the camera, Amy waved me inside. After you, sexy. From there, we entered apartment B. The front door slammed shut right behind us in a ferocious flourish. Of course, I jumped. And of course, Amy laughed her ass off. You already scared? She teased. I threw up my arms. We're only in the home of one of George's most prolific serial killers. Not our first time, Michael. Amused, I hugged her close and gave her a kiss. Come on, I said. Then we got to work. Even with all the lights out, sunshine beamed in through all the windows to light the place up like a stage. Not that there was much to light up. Most of the apartment was a big living room. There was an old torn couch, a few blankets thrown about, even a bulky TV. No flush was on any of this, of course. Plenty of stains and trash covered the scruffy carpet, not to mention the carpet was more ruptured than the parking lot. A small kitchen was connected to the living room, just an oven and a tall fridge. Not even room for a damn table. Expecting a cold cave, I was surprised by the room's cozy warmth, as if all the squatters had set up a fireplace for the holidays. But I could still feel the isolation in here, even in the city limits. Apartment B was a lonely place, all ugly blandness inside and all ugly poverty outside. I couldn't help but be reminded of my old neighborhoods, places Mama and I used to live. I bet Fowler spent plenty of long nights in this room, both from killing and out of boredom. There was seclusion in Apartment B's walls. Maybe being trapped in here was the final push toward the Stanwick Slayer's killing spree. Then I realized an even creepier thought. What if Fowler was planning the murders all along, specifically against the black race he hated? This wouldn't be a lonely place then, but a coveted spot for his evil. As she took photos with the artistry of a Snapchatter turned crime photographer, Amy pointed toward the walls. They were blood red rather than blue. I guess they painted it, huh? In case they missed something, she joked. Smiling, I nodded. <laughs> Wouldn't be surprised. Stopping near the TV, I saw that all the walls were red. I knew it was paint, but still, it felt like Amy and I had stumbled upon a recreation of the scene shocked officers had found in here over forty years ago. Red walls made of Clave's victims, flesh and blood, not to mention the human smorgasbord that was his furniture. This was Ed Gein in overdrive. Like an intense reporter, Amy took countless photos, and I did my best to type up notes on my phone. Turning, I noticed a tight hallway led from the living room to a few closed doors. I figured a bedroom and bathroom. The hallway resembled a claustrophobic tunnel, claustrophobic just like the rest of the crappy apartment. Stopping near me, an excited Amy pointed toward a shelf standing by the couch. One of the ripped-up sofa arms had obscured the sight. Hey, check that out, she said. Intrigued, I followed her over to the shelf. On top of it stood two modest picture frames. Through the cracked glass, each frame showed a lesbian couple in their mid-thirties. 
attractive but clearly lower class, grungy clothes and hairstyles, countless piercings. The taller one was a white girl with green eyes and long blonde hair, the other an African-American with a sexy fauxhawk. Who are they? Amy asked. Probably the last renters, I said. Amy took closer shots of both pips. Smirking, I looked back at all the red walls. Now that I was this close, the paint did look quite fresh, probably back when rent was a hundred a month. Laughing, Amy confronted me. Uh, even that's too much. Through the windows I saw the sunlight fading into night. The apartment was getting darker and creepier. Just how Amy and I liked it. Like a morbid museum that retained a curious mystique by day, but became absolutely terrifying once the lights went out. Come on, I said. With that, I led the way toward the hallway, toward those doors. Amy stayed close, like a constant soundtrack. I kept hearing her camera go off. You think we'll find anything? she asked. I flashed her a grin. I sure hope not. The hallway was even darker than the living room, no windows for comfort, like we were going further within the cave that was apartment B. Both doors were black and looked older than slabs of stone, the knobs long conquered by rust. I snagged the first one, but it was locked. Stunned, I kept turning the knob to no avail. What the hell? I muttered. Why is it locked? Amy asked, incredulous. Weird. The entire apartment got darker and darker, as if Sunnyside Apartments was getting near closing time, yet Apartment B was still warm. Sure, the building was shelter from the cold, but this was constant heat. There was no cool breeze seeping in, or a dormant draft for that matter. I wonder what the last tenants were hiding. Amy quipped in a cryptkeeper tone. Grinning, I looked at her warm smile. Hey, we can dream, right? She commented. Why not? Ready to explore, I grabbed the other doorknob, but it wouldn't budge. Both doors were locked tight. Annoyed, I pounded on the hard door. The hits hurt me more than anything, like I was banging on concrete. Crap! I yelled as I drew my hand back. Chuckling, Amy pulled me back. Nice try, doofus. I confronted the door, frustrated I couldn't see what secrets lied behind it. I think there's a window out back, Amy said. With the sudden fright of a blaring police siren, the front door swung open. Oh, crap! I exclaimed. Scared, uh, crapless, Amy and I turned to see a couple enter from the dark night. Two laughing females, their drunken laughter, reminiscent of hyenas. I felt Amy's nervous hand grab my shoulder. Full of dread, I wrapped my arm around her and pulled her in close. There we stood in the dark like uneasy soldiers. One quick flip and the living room lights cut on. Loud humming bulbs illuminated the apartment like a clinical lab. The two girls were the lesbian couple from the photos. A strange couple. In addition to the piercings, they wore punk clothing ripped jeans and t-shirts, tight black leather jackets. The Fauxhawk girl carried two large brown grocery bags, overfilled bags, like an all-American family shopping spree gone mad. 
Still chuckling, the blonde woman stumbled over toward the kitchen. Neither woman had seen us yet. My mind was at a panicked blank. What the hell were we going to do? Apparently Amy had an idea, stepping away from me. Amy approached the two women. I'm sorry, Amy said, her voice apologetic yet strong. I followed her. Yeah, I felt weird, but I wasn't going to let my girlfriend go alone. Surprised, the Fohawk girl flashed us an amused smile. Oh, hi there. She placed the grocery bags on the couch. I heard the fridge opening in the kitchen, the sound of drinks and food being pushed around. Together, Amy and I stopped in the living room. Awkward, as always. Like we'd crashed an upscale party, rather than just broken into a crappy apartment. We're so sorry. Amy went on, doing her best to suppress her unease. We didn't know anyone lived here. Holding a can of... Pap's blue ribbon, the tall blonde stopped next to her girlfriend. A wicked smile dominated the blonde's haggard face. Well, look what the cat drug in. I know, her girlfriend said. We've got visitors. Pretty ones, too. The blonde took a long sip, savoring the cheap booze. The couple's smiles were confident but warm, like proud hostesses. Keeping her cool, Amy took a calm step toward them. I'm sorry, we came here because we heard this was where the Stanwyck Slayer lived. The blonde's bright eyes lit up. Oh, play Fowler, right? Yes. Gathering my nerves, I stopped next to Amy. Yeah, this was his apartment, right, I asked. Apartment B. Yeah, the blonde went on. She took another compulsive sip like it was a dose of prescribed medicine. Mrs. Barrymore warned us about it when we moved in. Our landlord, Fohawk, chimed in. Amy and I released nervous chuckles. Warned y'all? I joked like an anxious comedian. I stole a glance around the room. He's not still here, is he? The blonde laughed. No, not at all, man. That bitch has been gone. Grinning, her girlfriend motioned toward Amy's camera. What's that for? Y'all trying to do an interview? The blonde teased. Like a documentary, Fohawk added. Hiding her nerves better than I ever could, Amy held up the camera. We were just taking pictures. Honestly, we really thought Sunnyside was abandoned. Yeah, I added. We were trying to explore the houses of different famous serial killers. Oh, shit! The blonde exclaimed. Excited, her girlfriend hit her in the shoulder. That's so cool. I'm honestly surprised no one's been around here before, I said. I mean, this is like history. Mm-hmm, Amy said. Like a smug celebrity on a photo shoot, the blonde draped her arm over her girl. One hand on her girlfriend, the other hand on her PBR. All that was missing was a cigarette. Well, we don't worry about it too much, the blonde stated. She exchanged smiles with the Fohawk. Rent's cheap and we're together. Her beaming eyes confronted Amy and I. That's all that matters. I understand, Amy said. Again, I'm sorry we barged in like this. Like a pathetic, apologetic suburban dad, I forced a chuckle. Clark Griswold himself would have cringed. Yeah, I thought it was a little too warm in here to be abandoned. Laughing, Fohawk faced her partner.
Oh my god, did you leave the heat on again? The blonde waved her can toward the front door. Well, you're the one that left the damn door open. Well, we should have probably leave, Amy said. I'm sorry about all this. Eager, I joined Amy. Yeah. Using her PBR like a baton, the blonde kept us at bay. Whoa, y'all ain't taking nothing now, are you? Her girlfriend grabbed her arm. Babe. No, I'm serious, Chris, the blonde interrupted. She focused her stoic stare on us. They were just messing around in our apartment. I promise we didn't, Amy said. Chris wrapped her arm around the blonde. You locked the bedroom, remember? True, the blonde admitted. Trying to leave the awkward situation, Amy exchanged nervous looks with me. Well, we really should get going. But the couple didn't budge. Like a human blockade, they stayed in front of the doorway. Chris's curious eyes stayed focused on us. Fowler's the one who killed all the black kids, right? With a fillet knife or some... some? Yeah, terrible, I said. Like a mob boss, the blonde took another cool sip. So why are you all so interested in them? I felt a couple stares pierce into us like daggers. Well, I stammered, turning... I saw Amy's annoyed glare strike me with ferocity. It's for this project, Amy said. Yeah, I'm doing a book on serial killers, about their homes and houses and stuff. I waved towards Amy. She's taking the pictures and helping me. Smiles cracked through the couple's stoic facades. Oh, how cute, the blonde teased. Y'all know about Jack Bates, too, right? Chris asked us. Amy grinned. Of course. Yeah, we're going to stop at his place next, I said. Like a rebellious teenager that was too cool for school, the blonde let out a smug chuckle. Oh, man, plenty of weirdos in this town. Not even counting us, Chris joked. Yeah, that's what I've heard, I said. With forceful apology, Amy pulled me toward the door. Well, it was nice meeting y'all, Amy said to the couple. Oh, yeah, you too, Chris replied. Unlike the blonde, Chris stepped out of the way, just enough space for us to clear out of apartment B. Turning, I faced the couple. Sorry about everything. Nah, you're fine, Chris said in a warm tone. Bye. Like a confident cop, the blonde's eyes and smirk stayed on me. Take care, she said with a sardonic sharpness. Amy and I stepped out into the furious cold. The temperature had dropped even further since we went into the apartment. As if she was shuddering us into a chest freezer, Chris closed the door behind us. The powerful effects of Apartment B's heater were now gone without a trace. Desperate to stay warm, I hugged Amy close. Well, that was fun. A little too exciting, Amy said with a laugh. Together, we started walking back to my Toyota. The howling breeze kept hitting us in waves. Amy jammed her hands in her hoodie's pockets, camera included. I guess I'll have to do more research next time, I said. My eyes drifted over toward one of Apartment B's many windows. Nah, that's my bad, Amy said. Not saying a word, I came to a horrified stop. The combination of the cold and my own extreme fear cemented me in place. 
Startled, Amy looked at me. Michael? But I couldn't answer. My eyes were captivated by the sight inside apartment B. Through the windows, I could see the lesbian couple emptying the grocery bags onto the couch like open Christmas presents. Right on the sofa fell a grisly collection. Blood-red gifts. Severed human limbs. Pulpy organs. The two women looked excited and thrilled, like bank robbers evaluating their stolen loot. Only this was stolen, slaughtered lives. I felt Amy's terrified hand snatch my arm, her grip colder than the December air. Then, when Chris and the blonde both looked up at us, their eyes looked colder than death. My soul became twisted in knots, especially once the couple gave Amy and I those wicked smiles. The two of them looked so happy, even with the scattered gore all over their bodies and drenched across the ugly sofa. They had the enthusiastic spirit of Clay Fowler and the enthusiastic evil of Apartment B. Come on! The frightened Amy yelled through the cold. I felt her yank my arm out of its socket, but it was the wake-up call I needed. Snapping out of my frozen fear, I followed Amy toward the Toyota, all the way through the slicing cool air. The door to Bartman B burst open like gunfire through the quiet night. Scared, I turned and saw the couple run after us. Each of them held a long fillet knife, just like Clay Fowler's weapon of choice. The couple's smiles looked more vicious than those long blades, too. Shit, I yelled. Keep going, Amy demanded. Amy's grip tightened on my arm, cutting off whatever blood flow. The cold hadn't zapped from me yet. As we passed apartment A, I stole a look at the windows. Through the cold air erupting from my lips, I saw a similarly horrific scene like the one I saw in apartment B. A middle-aged white couple spread out on the living room floor, presumably the landlords, the Barrymores, naked and laughing. They splashed around on the carpet, a carpet drenched in buckets of blood, as if the couple were making grisly snow angels. Like a persistent cab driver, Amy wouldn't let me stop for too long, not that I wanted to. Not when I could hear the lesbian couple get closer and closer, or when Mr. Barrymore's wild gaze made direct eye contact with my frightened eyes. Finally, we reached the Toyota. Amy shoved me toward the passenger seat. I felt the cold window hit my hands. Honestly, I was shocked my hands didn't explode like busted ice upon impact. Amy hopped in behind the wheel. Get in, she yelled. Terrified, I turned. All of Sunnyside was descending upon us. I saw crazed couples running down the metal stairway. Their loud, clanging footsteps sounded like a robotic army. Their frenetic movement made the staircase tremble in the wind. All of them were armed with fillet knives. All of them glowered right at us. And now the lesbian couple and the Barrymores were less than 15 feet away. The Barrymores still nude and bathed in blood, their fillet knives craving our flesh. I heard the Toyota start like a motorcycle ready to race, and I was ready to get the hell out of there. The smartest thing I'd done all day or in my entire life was give Amy those car keys before heading into apartment B. Thank God I did. Without further ado, I jumped into the passenger seat. All I could do was stare out the window as Amy put the car in reverse. The Sunnyside tenants got closer and closer 
as did their glares, their bloodlust, their sharp blades. Breathing heavy, Amy drove off with a furious mash on the pedal, and she never looked back. I suppose I shouldn't have either, but I couldn't help myself. Like a trembling child, my wide eyes looked back at Sunnyside, at all the bizarre residents. They gave chase down the street, and then finally they dropped out of sight. We were finally out of their collective crosshairs. Amy and I were safe. By this point, we had no interest in going to Jack Bates' house. Amy didn't even have to talk me into it. She even offered to still go there just for me, just for my Christmas present. But I'd had enough of the book for the holidays. Maybe in January. I'd feel up to exploring more. Just damn sure not now. We made one stop at the local gas station. There, Amy called the Stanwick police and told them about Sunnyside. She begged them to go out there as soon as possible. On the phone, they tried to calm her down, but Amy was understandably not having any of that. They even tried to tell us Sunnyside had been abandoned since the early 90s, just like my research had led me to believe. But nonetheless, the dispatcher told us they'd send a few officers over there to check it out. Only Amy and I weren't sticking around to hear more. In no way. Before leaving Stanwick, I ran inside the convenience store and got Mama her souvenir, a cute bearcat coffee mug. Yeah, yeah, I know. Pretty cheesy mascot for such a dominant high school football team. I gotta say it was unique, though. Plus, Mama did love her animals. Amy and I made it a straight shot back to Atlanta, with Christmas music rather than true crime podcasts playing all the way like we were a family looking at lights on December 24th. Smiling, we sang along to all the cheesy lyrics. I guess narrowly surviving attack from a band of murderers could make you a little sentimental. But through it all, Amy and I survived. And we'd be home for Christmas. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Our second story today comes to us from author Oliver Dace. I present to you The Ember Smell of Winter. Emily, Stan, and I enjoyed our grandmother's tales. During school breaks, Mom and Dad drove the three of us to her home in Plymerton, was a small coastal village, an hour's drive north of Wellington. Everything about the place was tiny. It was simple. 
There were three cafes. There was a floral shop and a small dairy shop that served fish and chips on warm Saturdays. On each journey to our grandmother's house, the three of us glued our faces against the car windows. We watched as the tall, dark, looming shapes of the sawmills were replaced with empty flatlands. The rush of salt to our nostrils replaced the sawdust that rained constantly over our heads. The green sky followed us, though. Whether it was in Wellington or Plymerton, the sky was there to remind us. It wanted to tell us the truth that each and every one of us will turn to wood when we die. That was fine. The stories that our grandmother enjoyed telling us pictured a time before the curse of a wooden death struck every inhabitant of New Zealand's capital, Wellington. With strong winds that battered the city, we craned our little heads at each painting that decorated her walls. She had even showed a photo of herself as a young girl walking with two legs. By her storytelling days, however, our grandmother couldn't even move off of her chair. It was depressing. Who wanted to see their family member degrade into an immobile husk? Her condition was worse every visit. Grandmother's lower waist had been transformed into a thick bark. Her arms hung heavy on her sides. Her legs seemed to merge, even fuse, with the wooden floor of her home. Even her voice had started to sound croaky, like two boards rubbing together. Her condition grew worse each visit. Every time Mom and Dad told us that we were heading home, I wished, I hoped, and I prayed that we would get another chance to see our beloved grandmother. Emily, Stan, and I wanted to see more pictures. We wanted to listen to more tales of a Wellington long past. For Emily, she wanted to hear about the lifestyle. My brother Stan was fascinated with the landscape. I, for one, was curious about the museum, Te Papa. The Te Papa Museum was a wonderland, my grandmother described. She said that every day, different people from around the country and the world filled the museum to the brink. It was impossible to walk inside without bumping into five or a dozen people. Some days, she said, it was best to stand still and let the crowd guide you to your destination. The reason was simple. There was a lot to take in. Once a person stepped inside the museum, they were bound to be lost. Whether it was the natural exhibition on the second floor, New Zealand history on the third floor, or the Maori culture on the fourth floor, one simply could not walk around without stopping. My grandmother said that she could feel her pupils racing back and forth inside her eyes. Each pupil wanted to take in as much information that the museum provided. It was a giant building filled with laughter, joy, awe, and a great sense of local pride. I wished so badly to see what my grandmother had seen. The Tapapa had existed today was no more than an extravagant mausoleum. Its corners were sharp. Decapitated wooden heads of the museum curators looked down from the building's large wooden doors. The creamy brown paint that had once decorated the facade 
had been replaced with the wooden bodies of people. Each one was strung up against the others like dolls. It was disgusting. It was a mockery of the beauty that had once been. Before my grandmother died, she had told us that she had forbidden herself from visiting the city. There was no point ever going back since the curse of the wooden death appeared. It would have simply made her depressed. Wellington was a husk of its former self. The current city was nowhere near like the beautiful windswept paradise of grandmother's stories. She had wished that one day the three of us would be alive to see Wellington in its glory days. Yet, even back then, I knew that the chances were already stacked against us. The side of my neck had already started to harden. The skin of my brother's back felt thick like bark. As for Emily, my youngest sister, I still cannot believe that she passed away. I remember the last time I saw her it was on a cold autumn night in May, a few days before her death. Emily and I went for drinks in the old Harbor and Sea bar in Lambton Quay. It was a celebration. Emily had gotten a position as a receptionist for one of the largest sawmills in Wellington, a 200-meter-tall behemoth at the center of the city. The pay was very good. Her hours were reasonable. She even got the option to take three weeks' worth of paid leave per year. I wasn't sure how Emily had managed to get the job. She had only completed a bachelor's degree in accounting and had a few temporary jobs at various call centers. Had she impressed a top dog from the sawmills? Had one of her friends given a good word to someone in the company? Or was it just plain luck? Whatever the case, Emily would be paid nearly as much as my position as a secretary for the city council. She would have been proud and excited. The Emily I knew could have yelled out to every person in the bar that she had secured a big gig. I was surprised, almost worried, to watch her lean down against the bar table. A half-empty cup spun in her hands. I never really enjoyed the thought of arranging people's wooden remains to be sent to the sawmills, she confessed. I jugged a glass, a hiccup. You can always give the position to me. I'd do anything to avoid crossing paths with that pig of a counselor, Jonathan Wales. But you have my pay? She slammed her palm on my back. Yeah, Narcissus. Nah, I'm keeping it, thank you very much. Just because I hate the kind of work I must do doesn't mean I hate the pay. Plus, I heard that my table was crafted from the body of an all-black. My option still stands. Working for the city council will be great. I hiccuped again. The bartender with a wooden jaw passed me two glasses of water. Emily raised her cup. The bartender answered with another pour. It is traditional, anyway. Once I save enough money, I'll buy a huge property near Plymerton and set up a business where instead of chopping people up, we can make them... Uh, I don't know. Human trees? Oh, you're just trying to live like Grandma, eh? That's so cute. I said, drinking my glass. The house is still standing if you want it. Yeah, but no. Emily said with a smile as I caught a few guys staring idly at both of us from the far corner. 
You were always her favorite, patted her shoulder. It had been twenty years since Grandma passed away. Emily was only six when Mom and Dad brought the three of us to the nearest sawmill to watch our dear Grandma be sawed and hacked to pieces. I guess I get why Grandmother exiled herself, she said, gulping her glass in one go. It is too depressing. I don't want to spend time in this city here any longer. I don't want to see mangled corpses in the middle of the streets. I don't want to watch them hauled onto the back of trucks or chopped up as firewood. You can always try being a model, I said as I hiccuped. You know, to cheer people up. Emily tilted her head. I was being serious there, I insisted. You can start by not being so gloomy all the time, Emily. Come on, cheer up. You'll start a new job next year. You'll be as rich in an instant. We can plan the celebration party now if you want. Let's leave all these problems for the future, Emmy. We have enough trouble as it is without thinking that we're going to end up as furniture. Plus, you still haven't had any physical trace of bark in you yet. So you're saying that actually should become a model? She pushed her hair behind her ear. Am I really that, well, sexy? The same guys in the corner glanced down at her soft, fleshy, long legs. Emily giggled, raising a glass up to her head. I hadn't realized that I was drop-dead attractive. Everyone, I apologize for looking so sexy. Maybe it was my looks that gave me a position as receptionist for a major sawmill. Emily, I groaned. She sat, head lowered, and cheeks puffed in pink. Sorry. Sorry, sis. Ego got the better of me. If it makes you happy, you're still my favorite sibling. You're not a dickhead like Stan. God, I hate our brother's guts. He thinks he's so great and mighty. I almost wanted to feel sorry when I heard that his back is turning to wood. Almost. It's everyone's burden. I called the bartender for another round. Seriously, just for once, I just want to know who or what did Wellington fuck up so badly that it left us with his stupid curse. She muttered and let a lock of her blonde hair to fall over her face. Grandmother said that the god of the wind was defeated by the god of the forest. That's why everyone is turning to trees, I replied. That's why everyone is turning into trees. I wish it was that simple, Emily said. How do you kill off the god of the forest, anyway? Wellington was better off when it was scorched with hundred-kilometer winds, like in the old days, you know. I sipped my glass, nodding. You're really not taking me seriously, eh, Natalie? Emily elbowed my shoulder. Anyway, after one more drink, I'll call it a night. You were right. We have enough shit to worry about. I'll do my best with my new job and work my way to get another property near Plemerton. I still have a few forms left to fill out tonight, though. Fuck, I hate doing this at the last minute. Don't forget to sleep early, I said pointedly. Of course, of course, she said and craned her neck back. I heard enough of that scolding from you and Stan to last a lifetime. I'm not going to sleep at 3 a.m. like I used to. 11 p.m. is my latest, that's a promise. 
I later found out that Emily indeed tried to keep her promise. It was overdose. That's what my brother, Stan, had told me over the phone. I felt my stomach lurch. My throat smelt like vomit when I learned that Emily had been found dead. A bottle of sleeping pills lay beside her bed. It was no surprise how she did it. At age 26, Emily Ritchie would have been another young victim. The local obituary would have labeled her as part of a growing number of people who wanted to escape the fate of watching their own bodies transform into a bark. Yet she hadn't. That was the worst part. When Stan relayed the information that our youngest sibling had died with no trace of wood in her body, I heard distinct cheering on the other end of the line. It sounded like 20 or 30 people laughing in the background. My brother told me that I should be happy that Emily had died this way. Normally, it would have taken no more than three hours before the corpse would resemble a mannequin. Even the morgue staff kept a 24-hour watch for any sign, any trace of bark inside or outside her skin. There was none. Emily had done it. She had beaten the impossible. At this point, I suppose I should say that I should have celebrated. My brother reminded me that Emily wouldn't have to face the towering sawmills that dwarfed every building in the city. The thought of my youngest sister being chopped into pieces and turned into furniture was whisked away. There was no longer any need to worry about that. Emily will be safe. She will be preserved. She will be the new chosen one who will be displayed among the decaying corpses within Te Papa. All my relatives cheered out at the news that one of our own had beaten the wooden curse. The city council was quite quick to proclaim the good news to the people. Not only had they given us $100,000 as a gesture of gratitude, but they set up a new exhibition at Te Papa, all as a token to Emily's death. In the beginning, Tohiri, the Maori god of the winds, waged war against his brothers. He attacked Tain, the god of the forest, and forced the god of the sea to wage war against the former. The gods of food took refuge and hid from Tohiri's onslaught. It was only the god of war, Tumatetwenga, that stood a chance and forced the god of winds to withdraw. Ever since that day, my grandmother had said that Wellington was Tori's home. It was obvious. Wellington had been considered as the windiest city in the whole country. The strong, 100-kilometer gale force that could batter numerous towns in New Zealand was an everyday occurrence that everyone had gotten used to. A day within Wellington wouldn't be complete without watching an army of thick, giant clouds spiraling around the city like a whirlpool. Those were Tuahiri's children. The winds and the clouds were the gods' army against his brothers. Tuahiri commanded them to storm the seas. He ordered his children to uproot trees and scatter the crops off the ground. Whether the god of wind was defeated by an alliance of his brothers or not was uncertain. It was always obvious that their presence was now gone. Wellington was no longer the windiest city in the country. It was dry, it was still, like some forgotten ruin left to decay on its own. The great fleets 
two clouds that had once proudly sailed the city had been replaced by an inky dark green sky. The showers of sawdust that poured out from the sawmills took over from the winds. The only trace that Tohiri and his children were ever here being faint fleeting clouds in the shape of a silent scream. There were quiet breezes. A gust came and went. Pitter-patter of rain held on for a morning. Yet none of them shook off the dry, humid weather that had devoured the city. There was no god to welcome me to the first day of Emily's exhibition. Only Stan. Kiora, Natalie. I'm glad to see that the curse hasn't taken you yet. My brother greeted me at the museum's entrance. His brown hair, which had once tried to grow, was shortened. He combed it back, revealing a wooden crack on his forehead. He'd grown bulkier since the last time I'd seen him, almost stiff. Maybe it was the large brown jacket that he wore. It was May, after all, and winter was just around the corner. I could already sense, almost smell, the roasted wooden bodies who were chosen to be firewood for Wellington. It's good to see you again, Stan. I hugged him, feeling the hardness of the wood that consumed his back. How are you keeping up? How's the family? They're doing great. The kids are being babysit now. I don't think they have realized that their Auntie Emily has died. They heard about her becoming the city's nearest darling, but they still don't get that people need to die to achieve that honor. I brought my wife, though. She's upstairs with the rest of the family. Mom and Dad must be gushing about the gang creeds. And you, I asked, how is your condition going? You sound like I'm going to die, Nat. This is your brother you're talking to. It's all sorted out. My local carpenter told me that even though my back has been taken over, I won't have to worry for a decade or two until the curse takes me. My wife got the gall to schedule me an appointment with a cabinet maker. I swear that I married the most awesome woman in the city. He paused, placing a hand on my shoulder. I felt the tip of a finger rubbing the thick bark on the side of my neck. I realize that it's hard for you to be here, Nats. I think I'm ready to see Emily's dead body, and the last thing I wanted to do is join some sick party. I'm only here because the rest of the family's here. You know me, Stan. I can't stand being the oddball. I'm not surprised. You're the motherliest type between the three of us. But that's fine. That's fine. Emily's the spoiled little princess, while I'm the more, well, let's just say, extravagant? Show-off? I cut him off. Seriously, Stan. Did you really put on a show when you called me that day? I can't believe you. I know that you and Emily didn't get along well, but that... Really? My colleagues decided to come over after work for a few beers, he said. Shrugged. Right. Right, and they started shouting. Emily will decay because... Because that's what people do when they hear that someone has beaten the curse. He placed an arm around my shoulder and led me inside the entrance hall of the museum. The place was empty except for a headless wooden body at the center. It's pointed its arms toward a stack of stairs in front of us. The figure's stump was bathed by the warm blue lights of the ceiling. 
The low hum of the air conditioner drowned the buzzing sound of the sawmills from outside. I could even see a faint flicker of a fire off the Wellington Harbor and the shadows of trucks near the docks. Soon the Lambton Parade will be on its way. Deemed unworthy or useless by the sawmills will be spread across the city. I can also imagine, almost here, an army of Wellingtonians marching toward the streets with axes and machetes, all ready to be hacked by their former city folk as firewood. For now, it was too quiet. I felt as if I had stepped inside an empty church dedicated to the holy decaying bodies of Wellington City, each wall dedicated to a painting or a photograph of Wellington in its glory days. I wondered if the people in these pictures knew what the future of their city would be like. Their smiling faces and quiet laughs were different from the sighs and grindings that I saw every day. Were there any signs of Tohiri's defeat back then? Grandmother told us that the city was unaware of any warning that would bring its downfall. Maybe there was none. Maybe everything that is happening now was beyond our limit. Maori gods have done this to us. Maybe they would fix it. My grandmother used to say, We can only hope. Where's the rest of the family? I asked as I scratched the wooden bark of my neck. They're on the fourth floor. That's where the exhibition will take place. Mom and Dad got a bit worried that you weren't here yet and asked me to fetch you, knowing you'll be conflicted over Emily. You won't believe how many people turned up for this day. I don't even know most of them or how they're related to us. Oh, I wish Grandma was here to see this. I whispered. You think she'd be proud? Stan asked as we climbed the wooden stairs, passing over a series of old photos of the Kapapa Museum in its glory days. She would still be rooted in her old home in Clemerton. She had said that she was in self-exile. I'd like to think that Grandma would make an exception, I said. Emily always was her favorite. She used to give her the first taste of the cookies since she was the only one small enough to sit on her lap. I remember how you and I used to fight for that position. We even made numerous alliances to get Emily off Grandma's special list. A smirk catching glimpses of dark silhouettes of the sawmills from a window. I bet she wasn't planning to die that night. Stan said as he chipped off a piece of bark from his head. Emily was a klutz. I bet she must have taken one pill too many. I told her to stop that, he said. Well, you can't really blame all of it on yourself, Matt. It's Emily's fault for drinking all those energy drinks non-stop during university. We kept warning her that it would affect her sleeping pattern, but that girl was too stubborn and pretentious to listen. Just because she was pretty doesn't mean she had common sense. You remember how she caught me taking away her valuable caffeine drinks? I forced a smile. Emily ranted a whole night, saying how you were the worst brother ever. She even avoided me for a whole month, he chuckled. I ruined that by popping by her place one night. Oh, that girl wasn't keen to see me. And now Emily's dead, I clenched my fist. Stan, I... I was with her a few days before she passed away. 
If I had known something was wrong, or if she had told me about her sleeping problems, I could have. There was nothing we could do. We could, I said. I was there. Natalie, my brother, gripped my arm. Please, enough. You're not the only one who's grieving. I may not look like it, but I miss Emily as well. We used to hate each other's guts. I swear our brother-sister rivalry was a bloody comedy scratch. But now that she's gone, I'm not even sure what to do. Stan, he continued, eyes narrowed. Did you want to see her being turned into timber, Natalie? I can still remember how men in white uniforms took our grandmother's wooden body and turned her into a piece of chair. I still have nightmares thinking about her body, how it was hacked by a buzzsaw. Seriously. Nat, who would want a grave like that? No one. Be happy, Nat, please. It's too late for us already. We will face those damn sawmills one day. But Emily, she will be here as long as time passes. She will be a model, a light for everyone who faces the chainsaws. I smiled a little. It was ironic, almost a sick parody, that my advice to Emily in becoming a model rather than a receptionist came true. Her beautiful young body would be displayed for all people to see. I imagined the public gawking with wide eyes as they approached her. It was no surprise. Those who had achieved the state of natural death were people either in their 70s or late 80s. It was rare, almost unheard of, for someone so young to defeat the curse of a wooden death. The youngest person before Emily was a 40-year-old man who was found drowned off the coast of Red Rocks. Since then, it's been elderlies. It was clear that the city folk were baffled. Prior to the exhibition, the city council declared that Emily's body was a rank one relic. Rather, to have her body slowly decay, like most of the inhabitants of the museum, she would be perfectly preserved. She will be a still frame. Generations into the future, people will ask the museum staff who she was. How had she done it? What did she eat? What was her secret? I'll be pissed if the local news reports a huge sale in sleeping pills. If that happens, I'm going to whomever made the report and tell them just because my sister had defeated the curse doesn't mean that people know everything about her. It's already bad enough that our youngest sister will permanently reside within the wooden walls of this museum. When I was a young girl, I played a game called Headhunting. The rules were simple. For every visit to the museum, my classmates and I aimed to count as many heads as we could find. It was an easy game, since there were countless faces that jutted off each stack of timber. We gave one point for the heads with blank expressions. Two points went for the faces who were sad or afraid. And finally, a total of three points for those with a smile, a frozen semblance of laughter etched in their wooden faces. It was a fun game. Most children and some of my teachers were happy to sacrifice an hour for a few rounds of headhunting. My biggest record was 206. I was slightly tempted to try and beat the number as Stan and I made our way upward. 
The faces that I had counted when I was 14 were mostly gone. That was the beauty of the headhunting. Every year, a hundred or two of these wooden boards were replaced. It was always fun darting around the tall, steep walls of the museum to find new faces that hadn't been there before. The constant smell of decay and the sight of peeling flesh from old bodies that suffocated the second and third floors was nowhere near the thrill of finding a new face. I wished I had that same excitement when Stan and I reached the museum's fourth floor. Boarded shut by thick wooden panels, the top floor of the museum was the beating heart of Tapapa. It was the holiest of places for Wellington City, a site where a selected few were granted the right to be a still image forever. Though it wasn't exactly closed to the public, a normal person was to pay a hefty $300 ticket, and even that was limited for only three hours. I'd been there once as part of my work with the city council. It was a short visit. I think it was only a half hour at most, but even then, I could still picture myself basking under a soft white and yellow glow from the ceiling. The floor was white. The scent of sweet incense lifted me off my feet. Kinukutu, Kinukutu, Kinukutu Katua. Greeting to the families, the proud families of Wellington's newest treasure, Kinurawa Atakwe. The pot-bellied figure of Councillor Jonathan Wales stood on top of a makeshift stage. A giant statue of Tahiri, the god of the wind, stood silently behind him. The councillor welcomed an army of wooden bodies below him. It was a mangled contortion of wood and flesh that ruined the serenity of the fourth floor. Branches sprouted from necks, whole legs were entombed by soft carpets of algae, and the army cheered. They shouted my sister's name over and over, raising their arms and craning their heads back. I rubbed the hardest part of my neck. Nails tried to claw the bark from my flesh. I felt sick. The thought that I would join this army was unimaginable. I wanted to get out of the building at that very moment. I didn't want to see the perverted sight in front of me. I didn't want to listen to wood cracking and turning. My grandmother was right. Emily was right. There was no point staying in the city that was a shadow of itself. I didn't want to see my boss running his bony fingers over a large curtain-covered glass case beside him. He caressed it. He lifted the bottom part a few centimeters up before letting go. Each moment... He described the beauty of Emily Reach. He told everyone that she was a prize worth dying for, how her flesh was serene, soft. You want to touch her hair? To rub her lips? You wish to whisper to her ear that she is beautiful. Why, why? The counselor shouted. His bloated belly hugged the case as the crowd cheered. This is our city's newest treasure, our Puipuyaki, Emily Riche, Tindarawa Atuque. Thank you very much. He paused. His beady eyes scanned the room before he rubbed his head. He lowered his voice. And, no, 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 I almost forgot. <laughs> but 
We cannot celebrate the Rerahwa, the beauty of our beloved daughter, without thanking her parents, Dofkwana, that gave her to us, Nuomai Hiramai. Stan grabbed my arm at this point as Mom and Dad walked up to the stage. Their bodies were woody and stiff, their heads were the only part themselves untouched by the curse. Yet they smiled. Their faces were covered with tears, knowing their wish, their hope, that one of us would defeat the curse had come true. Let's go, Natalie, Stan said, walking forward. His breath was ragged, his eyes were glued to the glass case upon the stage. Stan became a man possessed. I could tell that he badly wanted to see what was behind the curtain. He didn't mind if he walked straight through the army, bumping, crashing, and bruising both of us against the hard surface of our wooden family. I wanted to tell him to stop. I wanted to beg him to slow down. He was hurting me. There was no need to rush. There was time. The city council had informed us that Emily's immediate family would have unlimited free access to the fourth floor as gratitude. I wanted to protest, but all I could muster were gasps. The back of my neck became flustered, almost hot. In the back of my mind, a little voice told me to celebrate. It told me that I could once again see my dear sister, that the three of us will be united, and as Stan and I reached the front, wooden hands pushed us forward. I fell on my knees, only to look up at the beautiful, nude corpse of my youngest sister. I opened my mouth. The uniform gasp of all my relatives conquered whatever words I mustered. She's beautiful, declared the voice in my head. Emily Rich is beautiful, I repeated, my face now fully infected by the wide, toothy smile of everyone around. Tenahrawa Atukwe. Thanks for joining me tonight for Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you like what you heard and would like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's episode, which includes two more terrifying tales, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, where you can sign up for a season pass and get access to all 24 ad-free extended episodes from this season or sign up as a patron for just $5 per month and get access to not just my show, but our network's audio archive of hundreds of previous releases, including premium versions of our other shows. Not only that, but you'll be lending your support to this very program and help me continue bringing nightmares to life each and every week. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep. If you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. 
Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Chirey. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs>
Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.